to welcome you to Prairie View. We're glad that you've chosen to worship here with us this morning. So in this Christmas series, uh, over the past several weeks, we've been talking about the role players of the Christmas story. And what we mean by that are the people that we don't often focus on as much as some of the other people in the story. We've compared the role players to wrapping paper on Christmas morning that just gets tossed off to the side, never to be heard from again. We've compared them to extras in a movie who don't get their names in the credits. Nobody really thinks much of them. But one final comparison of the role players, one final way of looking at them, would be that they're like the sixth man of a basketball team. So, in basketball, there are five players on the floor for each team. That means if you're the sixth best player on the team, then guess what? You have to start the game on the bench. Now, you might think, well, if I'm just a bench player, I'm probably not very important to the team. I probably don't make very many valuable contributions. However, a sixth man is vital for the success of the team because you have to have depth. Eventually, one of those starting five players is going to get tired, and the coach wants a good sixth man to bring in so the team won't skip a beat. The sixth man is so important that the NBA actually has a sixth man award they give out every single year, and it goes to the most valuable bench player in the entire league. But here's the thing about being a good sixth man. Being a good sixth man on a basketball team, well, that requires a certain kind of attitude. A good sixth man has to have the humility to be willing to start the game on the bench. But he's also got to be ready to fulfill his role when the coach calls his name. The sixth man has to be comfortable with not being the leading scorer almost all the time. He has to be comfortable with not making the all-star team and not getting the lucrative endorsement deals with shoe companies. Now, today's role player of the Christmas story, he's kind of like a sixth man. He's not the main character, but nonetheless, he has an incredibly important calling to fulfill. And for him to embrace that calling is going to require a certain kind of attitude. It's going to require incredible God-given humility. So today's role player, the sixth man, is John the Baptist. So open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 5. If you're using one of our chair Bibles, this will be found on page 730. And if you don't own a Bible, feel free to take one home with you when you leave today. But before we talk about John, let's pray, and then we'll get started. Father, we thank you for this time that we have to look at people in your word who sometimes we kind of read over. Uh, sometimes we kind of gloss over and, and think they're not the main characters, so they probably don't have as much to offer. Um, but God, I pray that as we have the past few weeks, uh, that this morning we would look at a person uh, who you used in incredible ways. Even if that person isn't the star, even if that person isn't the hero of the story, um, you still use people like that and even people like us uh, to accomplish your purposes. So, Father, I pray that we would learn from John the Baptist this morning, that we would recognize and embrace the roles that you have given us in our lives, in our workplaces, in our communities, and overall just in your kingdom. God, we love you. We praise you. We ask all these things in your son's name, who we celebrate his birth at Christmas. 
Amen. All right. Well, if you only read some parts of John the Baptist's story, it would be hard to believe that he's just a role player. After all, when we talk about John, we're talking about the guy who baptized Jesus himself. That's pretty important. We'll talk more about that on Christmas Eve. I mean, look at some of Jesus' own words about John the Baptist. Matthew chapter 11, verse 11. Among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Jesus looks at his followers and says, Abraham, Moses, David, all the heroes of the Old Testament, all the heroes of the Jewish faith, none of them are as good as John the Baptist. That's high praise. On top of that, John had a huge following. So huge that his following intimidated Herod Antipas himself, the son of the Herod we talked about last week. Eventually, John would die a martyr's death, a death so significant that Jesus would stop what he's doing and go mourn over it. So we hear things like that and we say, now, wait a minute. John doesn't sound like a sixth man. He sounds like a main core character of the story. Well, to discover why John the Baptist is usually considered a role player, we need to look at other parts of his story. We can start doing that in Luke 1, verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. So Luke begins by introducing us to John's parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And Luke presents Zechariah and Elizabeth as wonderful people. They both come from great families. They both look to honor God in every single way they possibly can. They seem like the perfect couple. But again, the only problem is that they're old and they don't have a baby. Now, you have to think that would have been a great source of sorrow for someone like Zechariah and someone like Elizabeth. Let's pick up in verse 8. Now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty... According to the custom of the priesthood, Zechariah was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. Remember that phrase, filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. 
And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. So, Zechariah, doing his thing, everyday stuff, priestly duties, priestly responsibilities. But then all of a sudden, like we've read about so many times over the past couple of weeks, so many times in the Christmas story, we see an angel appear. Gabriel announces that a baby will be born, but not just any baby, a baby with a special God-given calling. Now, naturally, that's a lot to take in for Zechariah. He can't even believe what he's hearing. He expresses doubt. He expresses questions. And as a result, he's given a sign slash punishment of being unable to speak until the baby is born. So you read a story. And you see a message from an angel to a couple that isn't remotely expecting a baby, but not just any baby, a baby with a unique calling from God. Does that sound familiar? It should sound familiar. We have two miraculous births in the Christmas story that go hand in hand. We see the birth of John and the birth of Jesus absolutely tie together. Verse 24, after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. So as you might expect, Elizabeth rejoices when the angel's words come true. And even though Zechariah can't speak, he's still mute. Surely he's rejoicing as well. And all those people who saw Zechariah come out of the temple, and they could tell that he had seen something shocking. Something was different about Zechariah. All of a sudden, he can't talk. Well, they recognized what the shepherds recognized, and the wise men recognized. That even though they don't know for sure what's happening, clearly God is up to something. Clearly God is making a move of some type. Now, again, you think back to John, and you might be thinking, well, that still doesn't exactly sound like a role player or an extra or a sixth man to me. I mean, how many role players get angelic announcements about their miraculous birth, saying that their lives will be the fulfillment of prophecy? They'll be given a special calling from God that no one else has. That doesn't sound like a role player. That sounds pretty darn important. Well, again, there's more to the story. Jump forward to verse 39 of Luke 1. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, 
the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So Mary who we just mentioned, relative of Elizabeth, who is also pregnant by miraculous means, well, Mary comes to visit. We don't know specifically why Mary came to visit. I assume they're looking up nursery ideas on Pinterest. But when Mary greets Elizabeth, she walks in and says, Hey, Elizabeth, what's up? How's it going? How you feeling? Something strange happens. Something weird occurs. The baby in Elizabeth's womb leaps. Remember what Gabriel said about John? That phrase that we said we would remember? Gabriel said he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And that moment, when Mary is heard by Elizabeth, when that baby leaps in Elizabeth's womb, at that moment, Elizabeth realizes something. And she embraces something. In that moment, Elizabeth learns that before these two miraculous babies are even born, that Mary's baby will be superior. Mary's baby will be the main character. That's why she refers to the baby in Mary's womb as my Lord. This moment right here that we just read about, That's the moment when Elizabeth fully understands that while her baby is certainly important, her baby will really be a role player. Her baby is there to prepare the way for someone else, the main character who's coming. But what about Zechariah? What happens to him? We haven't heard from him in a while. Get it? He's mute. I thought it was funny. Luke 1, starting in verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. So what about Zechariah? Well, when the baby's born, Zechariah regains his speech. And the first thing he does is he names the baby John, just like Gabriel told him to. Zechariah simply obeys. And after he names the son John, he worships. He praises God. And in his joy, Zechariah does the same exact thing that Elizabeth did when the baby leaped in her womb. At this moment, John's father recognizes and embraces that his son will be a role player. Elizabeth and Zechariah both know that their son won't be the Lord. He'll go before the Lord. 
Their son won't be the source of salvation. He'll point people to the source of salvation. John won't be the star. He'll be more like the sixth man. As we look at Zechariah and Elizabeth, we see two people who are wonderful examples of resisting parent goggles. We see people who know their son won't be the star. Elizabeth has to know that Mary will be revered and she probably will be relatively forgotten. And yet Zechariah and Elizabeth, they seem okay with that. They're examples of humility. They're examples of contentment. They're examples of trust in God's purposes with little to no benefit for them. Now let's jump forward to John's adult life. Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So in John's adult life, we find him in the midst of a thriving ministry. John is very much fulfilling that prophetic role that Gabriel said he would fulfill. John even looks the part of a prophet at a time when prophets didn't really come around anymore. But when people see John, they come from all over. John comes from the wilderness. Now, the wilderness hasn't always been a kind place to God's people. It's often been that place of rebellion and punishment. But here we see that the wilderness can also be a place of new beginnings. John's message is pretty clear, pretty straightforward. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When John says that, apparently he really believes that this path he's been preparing, it's about to be used. John's baptism is unusual. It's not just some ceremonial washing, some religious hoop to jump through for Jewish people. It's not just something that a Gentile has to do if they want to become Jewish. It's something much deeper and bigger than that. John's baptism is about true, thorough, deep down at the very core of your being, repentance of sin. We pick up in verse 7. But when John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. 
but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Even the religious leaders come to John, and he makes it clear to them that they're no better than anyone else. He doesn't pull any punches. He tells them that they need to repent of their sin, too. He tells them that it doesn't matter whether or not they're Abraham's biological offspring, because sin can ruin any impressive family pedigree. And according to John, everyone who comes to him has a sin problem, all of them. And that sin problem must be addressed. He tells them to address it because judgment is coming and they need to be ready. He says that when that judgment comes, God won't look at their family tree. He tells them that if you place all your stock in who your father is or who your grandfather is, then guess what? God is holding an axe with your name on it, ready to cut down that family tree. So you better repent. He says God will look not at the family tree, but he will look to see if they are bearing fruit. Now you read about John the Baptist. And John's a pretty interesting cat. John's a man seemingly born out of his time. John's a guy who eats bugs, hangs out in the woods, wears weird clothes, and tells people to repent before God chops them down like a tree to be burned. Kind of an interesting guy. If you wanted to make a comparison of John today, John's that preacher standing outside of the Colts game on an overturned bucket with a megaphone screaming about repentance. John's kind of like that guy. He's a little weird. He's a little out there. He's the kind of guy that you may consider calling the police on in some circumstances. What can we learn from a guy like John? Such a weird, quirky, eclectic guy. Well, if we really want to learn about John, what contribution he has to make at Christmas, we need to look at John's own words about himself. Those can be found in John chapter 3, starting in verse 27. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. These words come at a time when John's big following Well, the following has begun to fade. The crowds are starting to get smaller. And meanwhile, Jesus' following, Jesus' crowds, they're all getting bigger. And some of John's most loyal followers are concerned that no one seems to be paying attention to him anymore. John used to be the star, and yet now he's looking more like a role player. But as John talks to his followers, look at what he says. Look at his attitude. He must increase, and I must decrease. He must become greater. I must become less. What we see in these words is that as Elizabeth embraced her son's role 
as a sixth man. As Zechariah embraced his son's role as an extra, we see that John embraced that role as well. John clearly is not concerned about his notoriety, his numbers, his fame. He's not concerned with being the leading scorer or getting the post-game interviews or signing the shoe deals. All John cared about was pointing people's eyes away from him and towards Jesus. And if people are paying more attention to Jesus than they are to him, then John would look at that and say, you know what? Mission accomplished. So what do we learn from John today? The weird, eclectic, awkward preacher who lived in the woods. What can we possibly take from him at Christmas? Well, a couple of suggestions. Number one, people like you and people like me, we are in need of men like John the Baptist today. We need people in our lives who can sometimes rub us the wrong way because they refuse to ignore or cater to our sin. We need people like John the Baptist who remind us of our need for repentance We need people like John the Baptist who challenge us to bear fruit. And last but not least, you and I need people like John the Baptist who point our eyes to the beauty of Christ ushering in his kingdom. Who point our eyes constantly to the one who offers us salvation. Because as we all know, our eyes are so prone to wander and look at other things. But not only do you and I need John the Baptist for our own sakes, we need to be John the Baptists ourselves. People like you and people like me must be willing to call sin what it is. We must be willing to call people to repentance. We must be willing to challenge one another to bear fruit. And of course, last but not least, We must be willing to point the eyes of all around us away from us and towards Jesus, whose sandals we are not even worthy to carry. And yet, he died for us. To fulfill that role, it will take great humility, the kind that only God can give. It will take a willingness to stick out like a sore thumb, It will take an unquenchable love for Christ if we're going to fulfill the role that we're called to, to be voices crying out in the wilderness, pointing people's eyes to Christ and to Christ alone. This Christmas, let's meditate on someone like John, the one who came before Jesus and how he pointed people's eyes to the one who came at Christmas and the one who will come again. And as we fulfill that role ourselves, may John's words be our words, that Jesus must increase and we must decrease. Jesus must become greater and we must become less. Must be voices crying out in the wilderness, preparing the way of the Lord, making his paths straight, that more people at Christmas and at every other day of the year 
may see the beauty of Christ for all it really is. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for this morning. Thank you for people in our lives who keep our eyes focused on you. For people who challenge us and encourage us and hold us accountable to keep our eyes on Christ when they tend to wander to other places. Father, I pray that we would look at men like John the Baptist and not just see weirdos, not just see people who rub us the wrong way, not just see people who are rough around the edges or maybe come on a little bit too strong, but we would see people who are being used by you. I pray that we would be willing to stick our necks out there and get uncomfortable and fulfill the role of John the Baptist ourselves. God, there are so many people who are out there looking for something, looking for answers, looking for guidance, looking for some kind of meaning, some kind of purpose, some kind of point to Christmas. And God, there is no better opportunity on the calendar than now to point people's eyes to your son, Jesus. I pray that we'll make the most of those opportunities, that we'll do it boldly, we'll do it confidently, and that we can just be looking out for those chances when they come, especially when we're gathering around Christmas dinners, when we're going to Christmas parties, when we're doing whatever it is that this week ahead of us will hold. Father, thank you for your son who came at Christmas, who lived a sinless life, who died a sacrificial death, who rose from the grave and will come again. And God, may we be ready for that. We love you. We praise you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.